Good morning. I am seasick, and I'm not kidding. I am, especially as I get older, I'm more and more susceptible. Uh, in January, um, my wife and I went to Disneyland with one of our sons and his wife. And towards the end of the, uh, the, end of the night, I went on the Millennium Falcon. Are you guys familiar with that? Um, I got so sick. and It lasted all night long. And the next day, I was still dizzy. So I'm going to ask... Uh, I don't have any maps or anything. Just uh, blank the screen. If you look at the remote for the projector, there's a button that says AV mute. Just point it at the projector and push AV mute, and it should go blank. There you go. Whew. I know some of you aren't susceptible like I am. And you know why, right? It's the wind, metal building. Our projector is met, uh, mounted to the ceiling. Maybe that wasn't the best design uh, decision. So when, when it gets windy here, we some of us get seasick. That's just how it goes. So hopefully we'll move that up on our priority list, Adam, of building improvements. Uh, we can remount that thing to the floor and it'll throw up at an angle. It's pretty amazing what they do with those projectors. Um, one other announcement, and that's just to announce the application for membership of Gary and Marty Gano. So this is week three, and Lord willing, next Sunday we'll officially receive them into the membership. Okay, I think I've got my, my uh, sea legs back here. Um, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 12 and verses 1 through 8. That's the passage of Scripture we'll be looking at today. So Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1. You know what I had to do when we were singing? I would look, I'd glance at the screen, take in the words, and then close my eyes though, for every song. Otherwise, I'd be more dizzy than I am. All right. Matthew 12, starting in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So here we have another occasion when there is a run-in between Jesus and his uh, adversaries, the Jewish religious leaders at the time, in this case, the Pharisees, and uh, it has to do with Sabbath observance. And this passage has that as its topic, uh, the next passage, verses 9 through 14, has the same uh, topic. We'll see that next Lord's Day, Lord willing. But for now, let's look at this passage of Scripture. First of all, the setting in verse 1. What's the setting? At that time. And by the way, that's um, a loose expression. It's not meant to imply that this is exactly chronologically following the, the last um, event. Matthew, in fact, often arranges his materials topically, and that seems to be the case here. But uh, in any event, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Uh, today, we're used to grain fields, wheat, barley, something of that nature. 
being in super neat and precise parcels, rectangles, squares. But in ancient Israel, it wasn't so precise. Uh, often the grain fields would overlap their boundaries. But whatever the case may be regarding th these particular grain fields, there are Jesus and his disciples, and they're walking through the grain fields. And this takes place on the Sabbath, Matthew is careful to point out. And just to be clear, that means the Jewish Sabbath. So the sixth day of the week, the uh, Saturday, the seventh day of the week, excuse me, the, the last day of the week from creation until Christ's resurrection. And we're going to talk about that in time, maybe not today, but maybe next Lord's Day, um, the Sabbath was the last of the week. And since that time, Christians observe the, the essence of the Sabbath principle on the day of the Lord's resurrection, the first day of the week. So on that particular occasion, Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain fields on the Jewish Sabbath. And the Sabbath was one of three main distinguishing features of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. Circumcision, the Sabbath, and the feast days, many of which were also Sabbaths. So those were the elements of the Mosaic law that distinguished the Jews as the people of God and were very important in Jewish religious and social life. Notice the second half of verse 1. His disciples were hungry. And because they were hungry, and they're walking through the grain fields, they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. In uh, Luke's parallel account, Luke chapter 6 and verse 1, he adds the detail that they uh, rubbed the, the grain uh, in between their hands to separate the husk from the actual grain. And then they would eat the grain. And by the way, this practice of walking through a grain field and helping yourself to the grain to satisfy your, your hunger was allowed under the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25, we read, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So you don't have the liberty to go and harvest your neighbor's grain. That would be stealing. But you did have the liberty to uh, quench, to satisfy your hunger as you would pass through your neighbor's grain field. That's exactly what the disciples were doing. But that's not what got them in trouble with the Pharisees. What got them in trouble with the Pharisees, of course, is that they did this on the Sabbath. And uh, that's what comes next in verse 2, the accusation of the Pharisees. But when the Pharisees saw it. So remember, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day, the, the traditionalists. Um, the name Pharisee literally means separated ones. And they were separatists. And the Pharisees were famous for um, their strict adherence to the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was a man-made addition to the Old Testament law. And it was a set of man-made regulations supposedly meant to help put the law of Moses into the practice of daily life in Israel. So the law 
said a bunch of things, and then the Mishnah uh, filled in the gap, supposedly, between what the law said and daily life. So the fourth commandment, for example, said, you shall do no work. And the Mishnah comes along and uh, provides a whole bunch of details that God didn't provide, but it was the tradition of the Jewish leaders to help fill in the gaps. But as we've noticed before, we're going to see this a lot throughout Matthew's gospel, the, the Pharisees had perverted the Old Testament into a, into a system of works righteousness. Uh, they had lost the distinction between the word of God and the, the tradition of the elders. And then they specialized in these man-made traditions. And they sought to uh, trust in themselves that they were righteous by their strict adherence to these traditions. And then they looked down on everyone else. Like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, they, they created these burdens and laid these burdens on the backs of the people that no one could bear. But what's especially interesting here in verse 2 is Matthew's words, but when the Pharisees saw it, they're spying on Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and his disciples are in transit. They happen to be passing through this grain field. And there are the Pharisees. And they saw what they were doing because it's like they're, they're laying in wait. They're spying on them. They're, they're looking for a reason to accuse Really, not mainly Jesus' disciples. Who cares about them? They're looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. They're trying to discredit Jesus. And they think they've found it. They said, look, your disciples, so they're directing this accusation against Jesus personally, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And we need to think about that. Was Jesus breaking the law of God? That's a really important question. Because in order for Jesus to be our Savior, to be our substitute, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including our sin, he needs to be holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. He needs to be sinless himself. Otherwise, the death that he endured on the cross would be in consequence of his own sin because, because the wages of sin is death. But if Jesus is sinless and the wages of sin is death, then Jesus' death on the cross was for someone else's sin, namely the sins of his people, our sin. And that is the case. But that only holds up if Jesus truly is sinless. So it's important to recognize and to be convinced that Jesus did not do what the Pharisees accused him of doing. In other words, he did not do, and his disciples did not do, what was not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So what does the Word of God actually say? Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10 might as well look there. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. This is the fourth commandment among the Ten Commandments that um, prescribes the Sabbath command. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. 
God says to the people of Israel, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So it's interesting, isn't it, that the Sabbath law contains more than the commandment to rest. It also contains a commandment to work. Did you catch that? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Which means that we're spoiled because we usually take a weekend. And if you work on the base every other week, you have a three-day weekend. We're spoiled. God's design is that humankind would work. But we're not supposed to work constantly. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, which literally means rest, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And it continues on. That's the essence of the fourth commandment. Cessation from work for the glory of God. To God. Which means, by the way, that um, the Sabbath means more than just resting physically, although I, there is, that's included. And it means more than just recreation, although there's a place for that. It is to the Lord. We, we need a rest from our normal work, our normal daily, weekly activities so that we can focus on the Lord. Because that's why we were created. We were created in the image of God in order to uh, glorify and enjoy him forever. And the Sabbath principle from creation, by the way, we'll see that in a few minutes, was intended by God for that purpose, to help our relationship with God by creating space in our schedule for the worship of God. So earlier I mentioned the Mishnah, the um, man-made tradition from the Jews that added to the law of God. The Mishnah contained 39 categories of work forbidden on the Sabbath. Now why would they do that? Because the, the text of the fourth commandment is, you shall not do any work. So if you focus on just those words and don't think about anything else that even the Old Testament scriptures say about the character of God and his provision for us, his mercy and his grace... If you just focus just on those words, you shall do no work. Then you might think that the fourth commandment requires that we just stay in bed all day long, right? Because to get up out of bed means to do work, to exert energy, and to actually Exert force over distance, which is the definition of work. So you go to the bathroom on the Sabbath day, you've just violated the fourth commandment. And so the Jewish leaders, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, saw that there is a problem there. You can't just lay in your bed all day long on the Sabbath. So they created all of these categories of work uh, that were forbidden on the Sabbath. And, and here they are. And I'm getting this straight from the horse's mouth from orthodoxunion.org. It's a website put out by a group of Orthodox Jews. So here we are. Here's what's forbidden on the Sabbath. Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing. Cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, nodding, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, 
reaping. And that's what the Pharisees were accusing Jesus' disciples of doing. They're walking through the grain fields, plucking heads of grain, rubbing the grain between their hands and eating. Reaping, obviously. Harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain-stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, marking. 39 categories of work. And under those categories, there were subcategories. It was against the law in their minds to light a candle on the Sabbath. But it was okay if you hired a Gentile to light the candle for you. But as a Jew, you were forbidden from lighting a candle. So these 39 categories had babies, and then those babies had more babies. And before you know it, there's this whole convoluted web of regulations about the Sabbath. One Jewish commentator from the time even wrote, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. For scripture is scanty and the rules many. So true. But this tradition of the elders, these uh, categories of forbidden work on the Sabbath that are not taught in the Scripture, but taught by the Pharisees and those who were of their ilk, that is what Jesus' disciples violated. And because of that, they said, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So how did Jesus respond? Next, in verses 3 through 5, we have Jesus' defense based on the Old Testament. There's two references. Notice verses 3 and 4. So Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, the showbread, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So what's going on here? You can read about this account in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. We won't turn there now. But the context is Jesus, I'm sorry, David, being on the run from Saul. Jonathan, Saul's son, had just warned David that Saul, Jonathan's dad, David's king, the king of Israel, was out to get David. He was jealous. He was going insane with his jealousy. And he was going to kill David. And so David had men who were loyal to him. And he had to flee. And he went to the land of Nob, which is where the tabernacle was at that time. The the tabernacle was a tent prescribed by God. And the purpose of the tabernacle was to be the dwelling place of God's presence. But it was on a rotating schedule. It wasn't permanently in Jerusalem like the temple was. The tabernacle rotated, and at that particular time, it was in Nob. So David and his men end up in the tabernacle, uh, in Nob, and they're hungry, because they're, they're on the run. And uh, he asks the priest for something to eat. And it was the priest who said, well, I don't have anything, but I have the showbread. The, the bread of presence. And 
Those were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the point of the bread of the presence was to symbolize throughout Israel's history that God is present with Israel. That God will provide for the needs of Israel. And then the bread of the presence was able to be eaten by the priests. The same loaves of bread weren't there century after century. They they were changed weekly. And the priests were allowed to eat the bread of the presence. But here's the thing. Only the priests. Nobody else was allowed to eat the bread of the presence. And Jesus' point is that the priests at that time didn't condemn David and his men. The prophets, like Samuel, who was a judge and a prophet, didn't condemn David and his men. The rest of the Old Testament scriptures don't condemn David and his men. They were guiltless doing what they did because the law of God in this particular area of the bread of the presence wasn't meant to be applied that strictly. It wasn't meant to be applied with no consideration to the compassion of God, to the mercy of God, to the provision of God. It was lawful for the priest to be able to offer up this bread of the presence to help David and his men in their time of need. Nobody was sinning in that case. And so, not lawful means a strict interpretation of the letter of the law without consideration of the broader principle of the law of love, in other words. Now, Jesus' point in citing this instance from the Old Testament was not to say that his situation was identical to David's. That's not what he's trying to say. He's trying to say that the way that the Pharisees interpreted the whole Old Testament, and in particular, the law, was not in step with the heart of God. They had perverted the law of God. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Matthew, makes this helpful observation. Jesus' point is not simply that rules admit of exceptions, but that the scriptures themselves do not condemn David for his action. Therefore, the rigidity of the Pharisees' interpretation of the law is not in accord with scripture itself. If the Pharisees are going to say that what the disciples of Jesus were doing was work, then by that same method of interpretation, they would condemn David and his men from 1 Samuel chapter 21. So here's another example, verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? And you can read about that law in the book of Exodus as well. What's Jesus saying? Well, everyone else is supposed to rest on the Sabbath in accordance with the fourth commandment. But the priests not only were not called to rest, the Sabbath was their work day. The priests worked harder on the Sabbath than any other day of the week. And yet, they weren't condemned by the Sabbath. And so again, Jesus is after this strict interpretation of the law that the Pharisees were guilty of, that 
ignored the spirit of the law. And Jesus is saying that is not the way God intended the law at all. Um, the, the Pharisees' interpretation of the law is a perversion of the law. That's not the original meaning. So that's Jesus' defense based on the Old Testament, verses 3 and 5. Next, we have Jesus' defense based on his identity. And this is really profound. Because any faithful Jew should have been able to make the argument that Jesus makes in verses 3 and 5. Any faithful Jew should have been able to go back to the Old Testament and say, no, Pharisees, you've got this all wrong. But only Jesus could say what he said in verses 6 through 8. Listen to what he says. Verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Remember in 1 Samuel 21, it was the tabernacle that was in Nob. One of David's sons, Solomon, built a permanent house of God in Jerusalem, the temple. That temple was destroyed and then it was rebuilt um, a few centuries before the time of Jesus. But the tabernacle and then the temple after the tabernacle, they represented the dwelling place of God. Now, Jesus is nowhere near the temple. He's not on the temple grounds. He's not on the temple mount. They're in a grain field. So when Jesus says in verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, what is he talking about? He's actually talking about himself. Jesus is saying, I am the one who is greater than the temple. Jesus is the true and greater temple. And I reach that conclusion based on other passages of Scripture. So keep your finger here, like I'm going to do, Matthew chapter 12, and let's look in John's Gospel, John chapter 1. These are familiar texts, but they relate to the imagery of what we see in Matthew chapter 12. So John chapter 1 and verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And maybe this is old hat to you, that the word that is translated dwelt literally means pitched a tent or tabernacled among us. And John goes on, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying that in the person of Jesus, in the incarnation, when the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God in verse 1, when he was born, God tabernacled among us. God pitched his tent among us in terms of the body and soul of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. And in chapter 2, in verse 21, Jesus makes this analogy himself. Actually, if you backed up, back up to verse 19 in John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? 
Obviously, they're thinking about the temple in Jerusalem. But John says in verse 21, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Just as the temple was the place where the presence of God dwelt, so Jesus' body and soul, Jesus' humanity, was the dwelling place of God. In Jesus, God tabernacled among us. To put it another way, Philippians 2 and verse 9, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus says in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 12, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. They obviously missed the point of the temple because the true and greater temple was standing right before them. And they not only missed it, they despised it. And then there's something else that Jesus says in terms of his defense based on his identity. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, a quote from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So, the God who gave the Sabbath law is the God of mercy. That's what he's pointing out. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The focus of the Pharisees should not have been on the nitnoids of the law. This structure of legalism that they tried to cram the people into. They missed the mercy of God. They should have appreciated and prioritized the character of God and then interpreted the Sabbath as well as the rest of the Old Testament in the light of the character of God. And you'll notice that based on a biblical understanding of the true meaning of the Sabbath, in Hosea 6 and verse 6, the character of God, he and his disciples were guiltless. And let's expand that a little bit. So Jesus is appealing to the mercy of God, but Jesus himself has come into the world to accomplish God's mercy. That's his mission. And so Jesus embodies God's mercy. And if you think about it, by Jesus dying on the cross and satisfying the wrath and justice of God against sin, so that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, we have the fulfillment of the promise of 85, uh, Psalm 85 and verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Jesus is the true and greater temple. Jesus is the embodiment of God's mercy. And then finally, verse 8. This is the real kicker. Jesus said, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Remember, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self-designation for himself. And it um, alludes to this Son of Man character from Daniel chapter 7, who uh, 
is a divine man and he ushers in the kingdom of God. He presides over the kingdom of God. But Jesus says this amazing thing about himself. Jesus claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. Now, in the Old Testament, who is Lord of the Sabbath? Moses? No. The Levites? The priests? No. Look with me in Genesis chapter 2. Verses 2 and 3. When did the Sabbath come into being? When was the Sabbath first instituted? In the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 that we've already seen? No. The Sabbath is what we call a creation ordinance. God instituted the Sabbath at creation. Then it was codified as part of the Mosaic law in the Ten Commandments, true, but it didn't begin to be in the Ten Commandments. It pre-existed the Ten Commandments. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, this is creation week, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Why did God rest on the seventh day after, created, after creating the heavens and the earth and the seas and all things that are in them? Because God was tired? No. God never grows tired or weary. He's omnipotent. He has all power. God rested. Because he was setting an example for his image bearers. So God blessed the seventh day in verse 3 and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Adam and Eve, because they're image bearers of God and the law of God was written on their hearts, they rested. And that's why the fourth commandment was included in the Ten Commandments, which refers back to creation. We're out of time, but you can see that on your own. The text of the fourth commandment refers back to creation. But here's the point for now. Who created the Sabbath? God. Who is Lord of the Sabbath? God. But wait a minute. Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is God. God is the creator. Jesus is the creator. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. John 1 and verse 3. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, including the Sabbath. Fifteen times in the Old Testament scriptures, God refers to the Sabbath as my Sabbaths, including Exodus 31 and verse 13. But 15 times, my Sabbaths. Jesus says, the Sabbath belongs to me. I'm the creator. I am God. And therefore, I have the authority to say what the Sabbath is all about, what the true meaning of the Sabbath is, 
and what is and is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. I have that authority. No one else does. The Pharisees didn't have that authority. And with that authority, do you know what Jesus said? In Mark chapter 2 and verse 28, Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God instituted the Sabbath from creation for the benefit of mankind. He didn't create mankind to cram into this pharisaical labyrinth of do's and don'ts and detailed regulations to be observed on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the benefit of mankind and not man for the Sabbath. So says the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath. And we're going to talk more about this, especially after the next um, paragraph in Matthew's Gospel, because I'll, I'll give you a sneak peek. A lot of Christians assume that there is no fourth commandment abiding for Christians. I don't believe that that's true because all of the Ten Commandments are written on our hearts. Now, what does abide for Christians is not a Pharisaical Sabbath, and it's not a Jewish Sabbath, but it's a creation Sabbath with distinctively Christian, gospel, Christ-oriented focus. And, and we'll talk more about that. But I do want to say one more thing about Jesus and the Sabbath. We've talked about Jesus being the new and greater temple. We've talked about Jesus embodying the mercy of God. We've talked about Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. Well, think about this. Jesus fulfills the Sabbath by becoming our rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, we read, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Gotquestions.org, which I've, I like, I appreciate, I commend them, gotquestions.org. They comment on this. Just as the Sabbath day was originally instituted to give man rest from his labors, so did he come to provide us rest from laboring to achieve our own salvation by our works. Because of his sacrifice on the cross, we can now forever cease laboring to attain God's favor and rest in his mercy and grace. Do you see how this flows with what we saw in chapter 11? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We come to Jesus and now we can have rest. It is finished. The penalty for our sins has been paid. When we go on sinning as Christians, and yes, newsflash, Christians do sin. There's not new wrath from God that needs to be propitiated. Jesus is our propitiation. And Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification. We are justified, brothers and sisters, forever. We will always be justified because of Jesus. Do you see the nature of our rest? We can rest from fearing condemnation from God. We can rest from laboring fruitlessly 
to try to earn our salvation. We can rest from the vanity and uselessness of this world. We can rest knowing that Jesus has purchased us for himself. We are in Jesus and Jesus is in us. We belong to him. And if you're not a Christian, that is what we invite you to. That is what Jesus invites you to. Where you are. You can have faith in Jesus. You can trust in him today. And you will realize the faithfulness of Jesus as he keeps this promise in your soul. I will give you rest. That's why Martin Luther in A Mighty Fortress is Our God calls Jesus um, the Lord Sabaoth. The Lord Sabaoth is his name. Jesus, our rest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this teaching of Jesus. We thank you for preserving your word in the scriptures over the ages so that we can read your word for ourselves. And we thank you especially for Jesus. He is the one who is greater than the temple. He is the mercy of God. And he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's our rest. Would you grant that we would rest in him and that, Lord, you would call weary, lost and weary sinners to Jesus even today and that they would Find their rest in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Ha, 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 ha.